So my question was, how many of you have ever like, had a class on evangelism or read, read a book on evangelism or taken, had training in evangelism or even thought about evangelism, right? Yeah, so it's, it's really hard, right? Because it's, it's a really difficult thing to really have just a class on. Like, it's, there's so many caveats to sharing the gospel with people. Like, you almost have to, in order to teach it as a class, like, break it down. Once you've done that, it seems to me as though a lot of the fluidity that needs to be there as we share the gospel with people is kind of lost. Of course, then, there's a lot of debate about exactly what is the gospel. Yeah. Some of you maybe have heard a rendition of the gospel that is maybe not an untrue part of the gospel, but it's certainly a caricature of the gospel at best, and that is something along the lines of, you know, you're a sinner. God doesn't like sinners. And because of your being a sinner, you deserve God's wrath. But Jesus has died for you so that you don't have to endure God's wrath. Well, that's probably a something related to the gospel. But unfortunately, when that becomes the gospel, which it becomes easier to teach a class on that, right? Because then you just tell people how horrible they are. But we, we miss the gospel. As a matter of fact, we miss our ability to actually gospel to people, to share the gospel, to live the gospel, to love people to the gospel. So we need to have like a basic understanding of what the gospel is before we even move forward a more basic, wholer picture than the one I just gave. A more basic but fuller picture is that the kingdom of God is here. Jesus has he's come. He's walked amongst us. He's lived. He was crucified. He died. And he was resurrected. The kingdom of God is here. The king has come. And he's poured out his spirit on us. Well, what do we do with that? Hold on to that idea for a minute. Last week, I, with some waning success, I suppose, I walked through some of Israel's history. And I'm going to recap it for you to remind you if you were here and if you weren't here to bring you up to speed. After Israel found freedom and liberation of the Hebrew people out of Egypt, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And they finally made it to the promised land. And they started to take possession of the land that God promised them. And they became a nation, the nation of Israel. And they were a unified nation. And they had a capital, Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was where the temple was built. But then some years later, that kingdom divided and that one nation became really two nations with two earthly kings. And then unfortunately, as things deteriorated in the way each one of these kingdoms were treating people, God sent Assyria to conquer the northern kingdom of Israel, where ten tribes dwelled. That kingdom never came into unification or never really returned again. Assyria, when they conquered them, took their leaders away, brought their own people in, mixed their religion, 
that northern kingdom became the Samaritan people. So when you hear this of the Samaritans in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, it's that people, those people. Okay? In the southern kingdom of the once unified nation of Israel, they were conquered as well for similar reasons. They were conquered though by Babylon, who had conquered Assyria. They were dragged off into exile in the same way, persecuted, taken out of their homes. That would really, I don't know how else to put it, besides suck, right? That would be bad. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want that for anybody. But unlike the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, they were allowed to return when Persia conquered Assyria. King Cyrus allowed them to come back. And so the southern kingdom started to rebuild. They rebuilt their temple. And then I'll jump a little ways forward to what was called the Hasamian dynasty, the Maccabee family, who took some possession of the area and resisted empirical force of Rome, the Roman possession that was ruling over them because they weren't really a free people even though they were able to rebuild the temple. And then interestingly... A little part of the northern kingdom called Galilee was repopulated by people from the southern kingdom. And that's where Jesus was from. And those people in Galilee and the people in the southern kingdom reestablishing around Jerusalem, they despised the Samaritan people that were in between them. Even though there was some connection in relation to them as the 12 tribes of Israel, there were some descending going, descendants going on, some family line going on there. They still, they, despise, they didn't like him at all. They didn't like him at all. They despised him. Hated him. And then, of course, the Galileans weren't highly thought of. They were so separated from Jerusalem, from the temple. If they were going to get there, they had to either go through or to either side of Samaria, and that wasn't pleasant. A five-day to eight-day journey, eight-day journey if you went around, maybe three days if you were really fast. Maybe Usain Bolt could make it through Samaria in a couple of days or something. He's a sprinter though, right? Not a long-distance runner. He gets tired fast. So, so when, when you hear about Jesus as a Galilean, he wasn't highly respected by as a Galilean, by people in Jerusalem. He was a Galilean. They were like people that were slightly unclean. And of course, again, they, they despised the Samaritans, and most people took that trip either down the coast or more inland so that they could avoid going through Samaria. Let me read for you an account of Jesus, who did not always go around Samaria, going through Samaria. I'll read the account, and then we're going to walk through it a little bit. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, 
Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and won't have to keep coming down here to draw water. He told her, Go back and call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right. And when you say you have no husband, the fact is you have had five husbands. And the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. So I want to go through this kind of step by step, not paying attention to every detail because quite honestly, I've probably preached this text 20 times. And every single time, there's something different. I can't cover, you can't cover all of what's going on here. And I'm probably honestly trying to cover too much, but bear with me, all right? You guys know how I am. But I want to go through this text with one question in mind. So try and like stop for just a second and just listen to this question. Just, and, and I want you to just, we're going to talk about a lot of stuff, but I just want this question to be kind of like in, in going on someplace in your mind, stirring around someplace in your heart. It's this. What is the story of the Samaritan woman at the well teach us about how we are to engage people of other nations, of other religions, and even more so, people that are despised. How does this story inform, what does it have to teach us about how we engage people from other nations, from other religions, and in general, people who are despised? So this account begins 
with the Pharisees hearing of Jesus' growing following. He's baptizing more than John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is a pretty popular dude, right? So he's gaining more disciples. And so Jesus then is in Judea, decides to return to Galilee. He's going to go back home, right? The idea here is that they're becoming jealous, and Jesus realizes that they're probably getting close to wanting to kill him already. Because they don't like John the Baptist, right? doesn't go well for him. You hear this reoccurring theme that we're going to hear a little bit here in a minute of Jesus saying something about his time. He's always talking about my time, particularly in John's gospel. My time hasn't come. He says it to, G- to his mom first. Woman, <laughs> my time hasn't come. Why do you involve me? That was at the wedding of Cana. Where Jesus turns water into wine. He was, a, he was kind of a cool guy like that. So this idea of his time, he's getting away because his time hasn't yet come. He's not, it's not time for him to die yet. He's got some work to do before he's going to die. And then in verse 3, it tells us he had to go through Samaria. And we know by the, what I already talked about last week and a little bit today, he didn't have to go through Samaria, right? There were two routes that most people took to get around it. He didn't have to go through Samaria. Not like literally did he have to go through Samaria because that was the only way to get there. That's not the point. So what is the point? If if it says he had to go through Samaria, but we know he could go around, he wasn't necessarily in some kind of a hurry. We're not on a timeline here. He he stops at a well because he's tired. He's not in a big hurry. That's not why he's going that way. He's going that way, and he had to go through Samaria because he needed to encounter the Samaritan woman. He had to meet someone so that we could learn about the worldwide impact of Jesus' ministry, of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Verse 6 tells us that he was, he was tired. Yep, Jesus got tired. I don't know if every, any of you have ever been in, in tired in ministry or tired in child-rearing or just tired for no particular reason. You ever have those days? Like, I have no idea why I'm tired. I'm just tired. Our Savior knows what it's like to be tired. And then if it's not enough, like if you're a parent or if you're just somebody that has a lot going on and you're tired, you still have people coming to you? You still got stuff to do? Yeah, Jesus understands that too. Because though he was tired, he still had some business to deal with that day. He sat down by a well. It was about noon. And here comes a woman coming out in the noonday sun. Coming out to the well that Jesus is sitting next to. It's not the typical time people would go and draw water. It's the hot time of the day. Sun's beating down on you. Tells us a little something about what's going on with this woman. Jesus asks the woman, the Samaritan woman, for water. And she responds, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. How can you ask me for water? Like she's to the Jews unclean. She's going to contaminate Jesus in her opinion. Besides, it's just inappropriate, right? Don't you despise me? 
You Jewish man? Jesus? She doesn't know he's Jesus at this point, right? But Jesus nonetheless asks. It almost seems like maybe there's something going on too where is it inappropriate for this guy to be at a well? By the way, there were some couples that met at this well in the Old Testament. Is it, is it inappropriate for Jesus to ask this Samaritan woman for some water? It's a bit risque, honestly. Just man and a woman at this well all by themselves. Jesus is like, hey, give me some water. And we don't even know if Jesus got the water, right? It's kind of an interesting thing. He's like thirsty. He's tired. He asks for some water. We don't even hear if he gets any water. We, we just don't know. But interestingly, Jesus offers her some water. He offers her living water. Jesus offers her living water. This, think about this for a minute. The Samaritan woman, the despised of the despised, a, a woman who we are going to find out was married five times. A polygamist, now adulteress. Jesus offers her living water. Let's not miss the fact that this is talking about the Holy Spirit. The very Spirit of God that he is offering her. This is how the terminology of living water works in the Gospel of John. It's one of his primary motifs. And when you run across living water, we're talking about the Spirit of God that Jesus is speaking of. The Holy Spirit of God. And he offers this woman... This woman who's out there, who's been married, we're going to again find out in a minute, married five times. She's not even married now. He offers her the Holy Spirit. Is this the kind of person that you offer the Holy Spirit? Apparently so. It's here that our ears should really perk up in this story. How could, how could, how could this Samaritan woman be offered the Holy Spirit? The Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, how can this be? I mean, come on, the Samaritan people, they don't even believe right. I don't know what they're... They don't know what they're thinking. In verse 16 and through 18, she responds. She responds to this offer of living water, and she's not making the connection, right, between what Jesus is offering and what she thinks he's offering, the Holy Spirit. She's not making that connection, understandably so. And she's like, yeah, give me some. That sounds good. That way I don't have to come back here every day. No more noonday sun. No more, as we'll see in a second, no more shaming no more having to go out and go through this motion over and over again every day of being isolated from her community jesus says go and get your husband and she responds i have no husband and jesus says yep that's right that's true and this week it's here that we find out a little more about this samaritan woman we find out what Jesus already knew the moment that he first started talking with her. He says, you've been married five times, and you're not married to the one that you're with now. He reveals to her that he knows her story. He already knows her brokenness. He knows why she's there in the noonday sun. Because she's an outcast of the outcast. She's the despised of the despised. She's a Samaritan who's despised. And here, this woman is an outcast of those despised people. She's not welcome to go out when the rest of the people go out, when the, when the soccer moms go out and get some water. Yeah, right? They had to play soccer then, right? Not. She has to go out in the noonday sun because she needs to avoid everybody else 
for the shame that she was experiencing in her community and in her life. And Jesus reveals to her that he knows her story, but he does not shame her. He doesn't tell her about how wretched of a sinner she is or about how she deserves God's wrath or anything of the sort. He doesn't go there at all. As a matter of fact, I think the reason that Jesus even names it is because he wants her to know that he knows what's really going on in her life. Because otherwise, she might be wondering, well, if he knew who I was, I don't know that he would even want to offer me anything. But he wants her to know that he knows, but he's not going to do that shame thing. He's not going to ridicule her. He's not going to call down fire from heaven. Instead, he seems even maybe compassionate because he drops the subject altogether. Undoubtedly, Jesus knew that things are not as simple as they appear. He knew that a man could easily put his wife aside. He could, a man could easily divorce his wife in this community, in this culture. That there were then limited options for that woman very patriarchal society. And that after a woman was divorced and put away five times, she didn't even need to have a marriage in order to be with a man or a man to take her. She honestly, at that point, was just a possession and nothing more. In light of Jesus' response to her, I believe, she's empowered to continue The conversation. Through Jesus' insight into her life, she recognizes Jesus is a prophet. And she throws out one of the, if not the biggest topics of religious and political debate between the Jews and the Samaritans. We're not very good at doing this. We just like start arguing when we make, somebody brings up a point that is difficult religiously or politically, right? Those are the things you don't talk about at Thanksgiving dinner, you know? But here, somehow, some way, she is willing to bring up this conversation that's very difficult. And it's this one. Where is the rightful place of worship? Where should we worship? The Jews say Mount Zion, the location of the temple at Jerusalem in Judea. But the Samaritans argue that it's Mount Gerizim at Shechem in Samaria. Because you see, like, the northern kingdom, the place of Samaria, the geography of Samaria... Those places are talked about all over in the Old Testament. And so it's not difficult to find locations within Samaria where people worshipped God. They they spoke of one, they appealed to one oftentimes, and it's Deuteronomy 27, 1 through 8. In a nutshell, they argue that that was a place where Moses was told by God to set up an altar. And it was understood that they worshipped there. And so that Mount Gerizim was the place that they said, see, our heritage says we are going to worship here. And, and this is where we can worship God. You see, they had this notion that there was right places to worship God. And wrong places to worship God. And the Samaritans again argued Mount Gerizim is the right place. And the Jews said, no, Jerusalem, Mount Zion, that's the right place. And if you don't go to the right place, it doesn't count. 
And of course, Jesus' response to her is radically harsh. He's like, you filthy, foolish Samaritan, you are such a pathetic idiot. Clearly, you have no idea what you're talking about, and you need to keep your mouth shut. And by the way, anyone who doesn't worship in Jerusalem is likely going to hell. No, right? No. I know, I got your attention, didn't it? <laughs> no. No. He, he, he continues a conversation with her. Woman, he says, which is not a term of contempt, by the way. I've sent people on journeys to understand in John's gospel why Jesus says that. And I, I, I'm trying to decide whether I want to tell you or whether I want to send you on that journey. If you go in John's gospel and find every time that it says woman, there's something going on. I think I actually have it in my notes and I'm going to give it away. Yep, I do. Oh, well. Woman, to the Samaritan woman, he says, a time is coming when you will not worship on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Instead of ridiculing her or even in engaging in this debate, he breaks down the barrier, this argument created by stating what God is up to and what he really desires. Instead of even engaging the, in the debate about where the rightful place of worship is, he gets to the point of what God really longs for, what God really is seeking, what God really wants. And it's not to specify the perfect geographical location to worship God. Jesus isn't going to go there. That's not what he's there for. He's there to, 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 to dismantle those kinds of ideas. What God desires is to be worshipped in spirit and in truth, Jesus says. And in Christ, God is bringing that vision of worship into fulfillment. More on that in a second. Jesus continues in this risque dialogue with this woman at a well, this Samaritan woman who's had five husbands and even, isn't even married now, who he seems to care about, he's concerned about, he, he's sharing life with. He says, you worship what you do not know, and we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Which we have to ask, what's Jesus' point here? Is he trying to argue and rub in the woman's face that Samaritan's ignorance and and wrongness, is it, is it play here? Is that, is that what Jesus is doing? Is he saying you are, are such a pathetic loser from a tribe of pathetic losers, you don't even know where to worship? Again, certainly, certainly not. It's not Jesus' point here at all. To get at what Jesus is up to, we must notice that what Jesus is not doing. Even though Jesus, Jesus, even though Jesus is stating that the Jews worship what they know and the Samaritans what they do not know. He is not excluding anyone. He does not say that, that since we know and you don't know that salvation is for the Jews, he's not saying that salvation is for the Jews. He's saying salvation is from the Jews. He's not saying salvation is for the Jews. He's not saying, well, well, since salvation is for the, from the Jews, it's also for the Jews and only the Jews. He's not playing that tribal thing. Talked about that last week a little bit. He says that salvation is 
from the Jews. Salvation is from the Jews, but it is for the Jews and the Samaritans. And for that matter, it was for the nations. It was for the world. That's Jesus' point. And what about this then desire for God to be worshipped in spirit and truth? Truth. God desires that people would know him in their worship. That they would really know him. Not that we would be worshiping some impersonal force in the middle of nowhere that we can't really have any knowledge of or understanding of our relationship with. Jesus came full of grace and truth. He came also to make his Father known. We wonder what God is like, and as Jesus says in John's Gospel, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But worshiping in truth is more than having, again, Right answers, ideas, dogma, or doctrine. That's not the point. It's not that we can just say, oh yeah, God is love, and I know God's love, so I'm going to go on doing whatever I, whatever I want to. It is not having truth that God desires. It's not having right answers that God desires. It's not possessing proper doctrine or right creeds or anything else that God desires. Knowing right perspectives about God or all day studying about God is not worship. I suppose it's worthy of consideration that it could be, but it isn't automatically. As James says, even the demons believe that there is one God and shudder. Rather, it is a life of service and keeping with the things that Jesus revealed about his Father, that is worship. For example, if you know that God's way is to be merciful, then a life of merciful living is worship. And Jesus came that the world might do this worship of God in truth, in spirit. Which is not to say that we do it in some kind of disembodied state. It's not what Jesus has in mind by this notion of we worship in spirit. It's not like we just internalize our worship. That's not the point at all, actually. His point is that we worship God in spirit, in that we worship God anywhere and everywhere. Not just on Mount Zion. Not just in Mount Gerizim, we do it everywhere and anywhere because the worshipers who worship in spirit have the spirit of God dwelling in them. Jesus came that the spirit of God might be poured out on the world. He came that we might understand that God does not want to be contained to a particular geographic location. And it's hard to imagine sometimes, but I'll tell you what, Israel struggled with that over and over and over again. And we sometimes struggle with that today. I have people tell me sometimes, like, you know what, Cole? I would love to come to church sometime. I would love to walk in, but I'm really afraid that I would just be struck dead if I did. 
And I'm like, do you really think that God is present there in a way that he's not present anywhere else? Do you really think God doesn't have dominion everywhere that he goes? Do you really think that like, if that's his way and he really wanted to strike you dead, that he would not have done it already out there? <laughs> God is a God who wants to give us life. We still struggle with this. But God longs for people that recognize that the Holy Spirit has been poured into us. And wherever we go, wherever we find ourselves, we can worship Him. When the time came, that time is what you can associate woman with. Every time Jesus says woman, he has something to say about his time. Does anybody know what Jesus' time is that hasn't yet come? What? His death. His glorification on the cross. The Father's glorification on the cross. That's the moment. That's his time. That's the thing that he's come to do. And it's not so much that just simply he wants to die for the sin of the world, but even more importantly, he's pouring out the Holy Spirit on all flesh. You ever heard of the pericardial sac? It's someplace like in here somewhere. <laughs> it's a, uh, a little sac that particularly when you were crucified filled up with blood and with water. And in John's Gospel, you hear of a soldier taking a sword and piercing Jesus' side, ramming it into his side. And John, it's John's gospel that makes a big deal about this. And he says, a sudden flow of blood and water flowed from Jesus' side. We're scientifically minded, right? So we're like, how could that happen? That's, his pericardial sac was punctured. And blood and water flowed out, representing the Holy Spirit poured out on the earth. You ever read in Ezekiel where the river of life flows out from under the temple, from under the, the altar in the temple, and it turns into a big, huge river? John is connecting that act with that narrative, where all of a sudden the spirit of life gives life to the world, to everything that it touches, pushing all the way, as it says in Ezekiel, to the Dead Sea, giving life even to the Dead Sea that otherwise had nothing flowing into it. The Spirit of God was poured out for the world, for the world, that we might experience God's dwelling with man and woman and in man and woman, wherever they might be. We worship Him in our inmost being, wherever we might be, by living a life in keeping with the Son whose likeness we are being conformed to. In response to the woman being talked to concerning spirit and truth and worship, the woman says, I know the Messiah is coming. I know the Messiah, the Christ, is coming. Somehow, she is associating Jesus saying this time with the coming of the Messiah. And this is really crazy that she recognizes this. And it's even crazier that Jesus goes with it. Because Samaritans, they had a different idea about this than many Jews. They both thought about a Messiah, and they both thought a Messiah, a Christ, a figure that was anointed to save the world, was coming into the world, but there was quite a difference in how that Messiah was going to live that thing out. 
For the Jews, the Messiah was a military conqueror set to deal with Roman occupation or whoever was occupying or whoever their enemies were. He's going to wipe them out. The Samaritans, on the other hand, had this whole different idea. And I'm not trying to say that every single one of them did. But they had this idea of what, it's, it's the word te'eb. Anybody heard of that before? The te'eb. The restorer and the revealer. The Messiah was going to be the restorer. And he was going to be the revealer. You hear this, actually, this expectation when the woman says that that one, he's going to explain, reveal everything to us. And Jesus' response to this is, I am he. This is amazing, considering that Jesus seldom ever admits to being the Messiah. Likely because he doesn't like people's expectations of what the Messiah was going to do. But here, this foreign lady, this, this woman who's been married five times and isn't even married to the one that she's now with, that's a, a dirty Samaritan, she said something like this, and he's like, yep, I'm him. The revealer, the restorer. These people, the Samaritans who worship what they do not know, have an expectation of the Messiah is closer to the truth than most of the Jews from whom salvation comes. The truth of the matter is that God does not leave himself without a testimony in any religion. There is something going on of truth being revealed in every religion. This is something that we absolutely have to learn if we're going to really do this gospeling thing well. If we're going to be evangelists truly sharing the gospel. We need to, to learn this. So let me return to that question. What does this story teach us about how we engage people of other nations, of other religions, and of people we despise? Well, we need to look for, expect, and not, not just look for, but expect and welcome all the signs of the grace of God at work in the lives of those who do not yet know Jesus as Lord because we trust that the Holy Spirit is actively working to lead that person to Christ Jesus. Jesus having to go through Samaria is a sign of God's pervenient grace. His graceful way that comes before anybody even has a clue that God is gracious. Boy, I'll tell you what. The next breath you breathe is simply because of God's grace. The next breath that somebody breathes that doesn't yet know Jesus is because of God's grace. Instead of focusing on the differences that we see when we're talking to people of other, relation, other, other religions, other nations, other places, other ideas, we should seek to find common ground. Even, again, people of other religions have something of truth to build on. I mean, like, humanism. I'll sum up humanism for just a second. It comes in various forms. Like, let's just be good, <laughs> okay? Let's just be good. Some people in the church, they just want to lambaste this notion of humanism. Like, let's be good. Like, oh, you guys are horrible. You can't try and be good. You don't have God. You can't be good. You're a sinner. Is that really the route that we have to go? Can't we build on what's good? The image of God has not been lost entirely in people, brothers and sisters. It has not. Just to ask you a simple question, how have you responded in your own life when somebody's just totally pointed out all your flaws? 
Does that make you feel in any way welcomed? Does it break down barriers or does it put up barriers? We then, too, have to have this in order to do these things, this bigger picture of the gospel. I'll tell you, Jesus lays it out here. People don't need to be convinced of how horrible and wretched of sinners they are to receive the gospel. They don't need to have their sins ferreted out and be talked about to how wretched of a person that they are. Jesus didn't do that here. Remember, too, Jesus' offer of living water came before he even mentioned anything about this one being married five times, as if that really ever even had anything to do with him being negative toward her at all. Anyway, obviously, in her responses, it didn't. And the last thing that I want to say about this for now is that if we're going to share the gospel with people, we can't forget the cross. You can't forget the cross. There are a lot of religions in the world. The largest religion in our world is Islam. There's more Islamic people in the world than any other religion. And they're not actually missing Jesus. It sounds really strange. They just have a Jesus that doesn't have a cross. When I say that we need to not forget the cross, what I mean is this notion of self-sacrificial love of neighbor and enemy. Self-sacrificial love of neighbor and enemy that is willing to die for the sake of loving one's enemies. There is no way that we can go with a gospel that isn't a gospel if it doesn't have the cross and expect to lead people to Jesus. Because they already have that. People are, they, they have enough hatred. They have enough killing of one another. We can't show up as Christians and say, I'll tell you what, let me tell you about Jesus, and if you don't want to believe, I'm going to kill you, because they just say this and do the same exact thing to us in most extreme forms. And by no means am I trying to say that everybody who is of the Muslim faith is a wretched person by, one that wants to kill people by any means. That's an unfortunate caricature of that religion. If we're going to be honest, and I did not intend to get all the way this far into this, but since I'm here, I'm just going to do it anyway. Hopefully dinner will still be warm when we're done. When you study your Old Testament, when you read your Old Testament, you can justify a lot of war. You can justify killing a whole lot of people. And it's Jesus that comes along and says, uh -uh. that's not what my father wants you to be up to. He wants to seek and to save the lost. He wants to save the world. He wants to transform it. He wants his kingdom to come here, a kingdom that is known for self-sacrificial love that's willing to die for neighbor and enemy. That's what is different for Christians. So when people say something along the lines of, oh, those Muslim people are from a very militant religion, so can, so can be Judaism. And unfortunately, a crossless Christianity can also be that same thing. Study church history, study the Crusades. They seem to have forgotten the cross. It doesn't take us very long to read the way of Jesus. How does Jesus 
engage these Samaritan people who had their, their own Pentateuch, by the way, the first five books of the Old Testament. They had their own version of it. Not unlike the way that Islam today has an awful lot of the Old Testament in their religion. We cannot expect that we're going to go to Samaritans, to Muslims, to Jewish people, to Palestinians, to you name it, and think that we can somehow gospel to them without the cross. We can't do it. Because when we try, we all of a sudden have left everything that is necessary to even consider ourselves Christians behind. We're going to talk more about this next week. But brothers and sisters, if you have sought to follow Jesus because you're trying not to suffer, because you're trying not to persecute, be persecuted, because you're trying not to have to bear a cross, sorry, but you're following the wrong guy. You're following the wrong guy. That's not what you got yourself into here. I hate to tell you that. Actually, I don't. I don't. Because it's the truth. Jesus' way is the truth. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And Jesus' way goes through Samaria. Jesus' way goes through hostile territory. Jesus' way offers you life, but in this life, it very well might get you killed. Let's pray. Oh my goodness, Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for, despite that we turned our backs on you and we consider our, had considered ourselves your enemies, you come walk amongst us, lay your life down for us and save us and turn us and change us. Help us, Lord Jesus, to take up our crosses and to follow you, to follow you closely, to follow you well, to not think that we can transform a world with a Christless gospel. There's no gospel at all with a crossless gospel. Help us to learn to love well. Help us to learn to share the good news of the Spirit poured out on all flesh with a world that sometimes just doesn't want to hear it. Help us, Lord God, to be different. Help us to learn to follow you closely follow you into hostile lands, to not vilify all the more our enemies. Help us to be different. Help us to be like you, Jesus. Amen.